Welcome to Painting Corners, your weekly podcast for all things baseball. Now, here are your hosts, Austin Hartsfield and Dave Kwiatkowski. All right, so when Dave and I started painting corners, there was a couple of people that I've wanted on the show. You know, everybody wants athletes. Obviously, we want Red Sox eventually. That'll happen. That's true. That's but, true. Go JBJ. Anybody's listening get to out this. of here with your JBJ takes. Um, My ALCS MVP. Shut up. Um, but when it came down to it, and you know, we were talking about dream guests. The guy that's actually on with us today is was on my list, and that is fantasy expert Gary and Thorne from DraftKings. What's going on, Gary? Not too much, guys. Uh, no, it's 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 nice to hear. Although obviously not an athlete. Um, if I was, I would personally hope I wouldn't play for the Red Sox. Um, wow. Who are you a fan? Are you a Yankee fan? He's a, Tor- no, he's a Blue Jays no, fan. I'm, a, I'm Toronto. Oh, that's fan. right. You're the Blue Jays guy. I always kind of forget their team. So you know, forgive me. That and that's that's the thing is like we we are also in the same division as every Boston <laughs> New York team, and we have no rivals, and no one cares about us. No, it's uh, true. Yeah, we kind of just. Just below the radar a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> so we got big news yesterday. At the time of this recording, Bryce Harper signed his huge deal yesterday. What's kind of the reaction from you, and what's kind of the reaction, and what fantasy ramifications does this have? It's it's almost unfortunate just how boring I think my take on this is. Like I, I just don't really see it changing his value all that much. Um, I, I guess you could make the case, and probably correctly so, that Citizens Bank Park has been one of the best non-Coors home run hitters parks for the past three, four, five seasons. Uh, I know by ESPN Park Factors, last season was actually the best home run park in all of baseball. But, you know, Nationals Park was a pretty good offensive park last season. So I don't think there's a massive change here. I, I, I think the big takeaway is just it's better that it was the Phillies than the Giants, right? Um, yeah, you wouldn't want to see him playing at Oracle. Uh, the lineup obviously doesn't have the same sort of luster at this point, although, you know, adding Bryce Harper would obviously help that. I think really the interesting thing, uh, is just what it does to us trying to project the Phillies lineup, which, you know, it's, it's going to be a good lineup anyway. And you could make the case that, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, but someone's got to hit seventh and someone's got to hit eighth now. Uh, and I know a lot of people kind of liked, you know, taking a flyer and like Cesar Hernandez, you know, especially pick you, one eighty, pick one ninety. <laughs> uh, but it just it it just seems rough. Uh, and I know he had the injury yesterday too with the hip flexor, so that obviously puts a wrinkle in this too. But it it's hard to envision a scenario where it's not McCutcheon leading off, and then probably Gene Segura batting second. So you know, it, it just maybe sort of tanks any perspective value we could have had with a Cesar Hernandez. Uh, pre Bryce Harper Phillies lineup that was probably going to be pretty good anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably just the guys around Harper. Cause I, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I really don't see this affecting it all that much. He's still just a top 15 player, uh, you know, borderline top five outfielder. Uh, I, I think I'm just pretty set in stone with that philosophy at this point, regardless of where he signed. No, I'm pretty much the same way on that. Almost exactly to it. The only thing that fantasy value would increase in my opinion would be rbis depending where they put them in the lineup because guys are going to get on base uh, a little bit more especially with adding you know jt and you know segura 
do you think there's a possibility that he somehow slides into that, you know, magic new two hole where they're going to put, you know, Aaron Judge has been there. They're talking about putting Mookie Betts there. Do you think he jumps up to two and like that's a new phenomenon because Gabe Cap was the big analytics guy? Yeah. And, you know, those type of things. Would that affect him negatively or would just kind of also kind of balance out and stay the same if he does get to the two? Well, I think the two would be okay for Hart. I mean, he's really like from an archetypical standpoint, he is the guy you would want to bat second. Uh, and Kapler would be the manager to do it, as you mentioned. So that that's an interesting wrinkle, too. And the nice thing, you know, you mentioned the RBI total and the possible RBI total. I agree. I mean, I think that he'd be in a very pristine spot. We're probably talking about a top five offense in all of baseball uh, for next season. But if you've owned Bryce Harper throughout the years, you weren't really necessarily owning him for RBI upside anyway, if that makes sense. Like, I know we're talking about somebody who's, you know, been a National League MVP, and has consistently gotten to that 90 RBI plateau, but it's not as if we're taking someone out of a 3-4 spot in a lineup who we're expecting to get 110, 115 RBIs to bring back value. This is someone who just for the first time last season crested 100 RBI, and it took him over 670 plate appearances to do it. So, you know, you wouldn't be losing that factor so much as I think he could still get to generally what his career average has been out of the two spot. And his run production would probably just skyrocket. I mean, we've we've seen, you know, I'm not going to show my Blue Jays alliances all the time, but we've seen, you know, someone like Josh Donaldson, the couple years he was hitting second in a lineup that was one of the two, three, four best in all of baseball, you know, 120 run production is is you know it's it's on the table. So no, it's a I actually think I would exactly. So I actually think I would sort of like it if he moved to two, but. There, there again. There's really no wrong answer here. I guess if he moves to two, the worry is like, okay, what do they do with Segura? Because he doesn't really feel like he's a guy who would hit, you know, sixth. Like, does he move to seventh? Or it's, it's their lineup is is super interesting to me. So when it comes to fantasy value, right? You talked about Citizens Bank Park and how great it is for hitters. How much does the ballpark they play in actually affect the value of the player, and does it affect their ADP a whole lot? I think it's it's all specific uh, to particular cases. Uh, I mean, the most obvious example, I guess, would be the other new Philly, if we want to talk real Muto, where, you know, it, it's it, it's not always even about where they're going. It's about where they're leaving. And, and you know, if, if you wanted to use ESPN's park factors or even baseball perspective, perspectives factors, uh, which, you know, account for handedness as well, it was, you know, Marlins Park was just the worst ballpark for a right-handed hitter to be last season. So... You know, that was one of those rare situations where anywhere he could have signed or could have been traded, uh, it, it just was going to be an improvement. And Citizens Bank Park is such a massive improvement that it, you know, it's it's eye popping in a way. But I would say it's it's a it's it's like anything else. It's maybe when it comes to draft day and, and you're kind of looking between two players who you have in a similar tier, maybe it's a way to tie break, uh, you know, right up there with strength of lineup and 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 run projections and stuff like that. But you know, I, I would say I break it out on occasion. It, it's not like one of the first things I look at when I'm trying to break down a player's value, but you know, definitely a park like Citizens Bank. If 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 it's if it's a guy going for Marlins Park, there, sure, I think it's it's definitely something we have to talk about. When it's someone like Harper going from Nationals Park, it it becomes less of a concern for me. Yeah, so it's not the biggest jump as you were just saying from the ballpark dramatically. 
shifting away from Harper a little bit, but staying on top of that, you know, the big value of who Harper is and, you know, is he going to be at the top of the lineup and stuff like that. I mentioned before we get on the show that I was talking to some of my buddies about our fantasy baseball league that we're starting up, but, you know, the draft is going to be at the end of March. And I always get in the same debate and I get in the same debate with people that have, you know, won fantasy leagues, have played in a lot of fantasy leagues. And my whole philosophy on drafting at the top of the, the draft board, obviously not later on, is I go for starting pitching. I go for starting pitching in the first two, if not three rounds, pretty much every single year, because my philosophy on it is you can always find an outfielder or a utility guy that gets called up or starts you know, blowing up mid-year. You look back a couple years ago, Tommy Fan, Chris Taylor, Walker Bueller is the exception for the pitcher, but Cody Bellinger, you look at all those young guys, and most of the time, they're going to be fielders, specifically outfielders because of the way that you can, you know, kind of, you know, quote-unquote, abuse the system and say he's an outfielder, but he can, but he really plays first base a lot, but he's listed as an outfielder. For everybody listening at home, what's your philosophy at the top of your board drafting? Do you kind of share the same thing? Do you go best pay- player available? And is it always just a Mike Trout show number one? Usually Mike Trout, yeah. Although usually, um, oh, one of one Mike Trout usually. Yeah, uh, but uh, I actually I'm, I'm I'm willing to hear the Mookie Betts arguments this season. Uh, oh, okay. I don't I hate mean, it. People people don't talk. I, I don't think I don't want to get on my soapbox here that Mike Trout is a bad player or anything. But you know, I it, it's sort of like Harper. I don't think we've talked enough about the fact that you know, for as much as we like to say Mike Trout is a five category player, and in theory, in a vacuum, he is. He's never really had the RBI production, uh, and Mookie's kind of had him in that category the last couple of seasons. But anyway, I think that's that's you know if you have the first or second pick, it's it's a pretty blessed situation to be in anyway. But I, I would say I'm pretty malleable. Um, I I wouldn't often start pitcher pitcher, and I and I guess it depends on the season, and, and it's all case specific. But I, I do find that sometimes when I'm looking at you know a standard five by five league. You know, there there is just the factor when you take a starting pitcher, as you know, aside from their dominance in, in certain categories, like if you can get a Scherzer or something like that, um, you know, they are at best a, fa- a four category player because uh, you know they're not going to save games. So th- there's that aspect, but I would say this year specifically, um, I've really kind of taken taken a liking to starting with two positional players. And then in round three and four, there's just the tier of guy past Corey Kluber, uh, the tier that includes like Nola and Bauer and Snell and to a lesser extent Severino. But, you know, Patrick Corbin starts to get in that mix as well. I just like a lot of those names and, and I and I trust uh, a lot of those guys. And, and I'm even finding with it seems like we've kind of started the backlash everyone expected to happen with Blake Snell. Um, that's that's really picked up in the last couple of weeks, and, and he, you know, we we just started doing um, Justin Mason's fantastic uh, fantasy baseball invitational, um, and it, it does seem like some guys are a little scared to go with Snell because of the strand rate, because of the BAPIP. I'm cool with it. Uh, I, I honestly think we're moving to an age of baseball where. You know, it's going to be the norm to have eight, nine, ten starting pitchers by season's end have a strand rate above eighty percent. So, I, I think that that tier is something I really like to exploit this particular season. So that might be painting my early draft board a little differently than I would say. You know, every single season, I don't think I'm going to start positional player, positional player. But this year, that's kind of how it's gone. 
All right, Gary, and so I'm going to throw a couple guys at you that I kind of, I'm kind of curious on their fantasy value. You have a guy like Andrew Benintendi, who's obviously a blossoming star, who gets to play every day and who's going to get a lot of at-bats. Then you have a guy on the other side, who, like Fran Moreas, who's kind of in danger of splitting appearances with Hunter Renfro. What's the value? Well, like you said, they're obviously pretty different. Um, I think the interesting thing with Benintendi is, you know, you've got Alex Cora coming out and saying that he's going to bat leadoff this season, which, you know, it's it's hard to necessarily pencil a guy in for like 160 games every single season. But, you know, Benintendi over the last two seasons has shown his durability. Uh, He's gotten above 650 plate appearances each of the last two seasons. And not that he, by any means, is a a player that needs volume to be a successful fantasy commodity, but you know you're talking about someone who has the potential to be a five category contributor, um, and and was last season. Maybe the RBIs take a bit of a hit batting leadoff primarily, but if he's someone who can get to, you know, a Francisco Lindor or Trey Turner level of plate appearances this season, if he can get to more than 700 plate appearances in one of the only two offenses in baseball that Fangrass projects to be scoring more than five runs per game, he could very easily lead the league in runs. In fact, that's that's not the craziest thing to say. If I was putting odds on it, you know, it might be like six or seven to one that Andrew Benintendi leads the league in runs. It, it just makes a lot of sense to me. And then you factor in, obviously, someone who can just get 20 home runs, 20 stolen bases. There's there's inherent safety in a guy like Ben Benintendi. So I think right now where he's going inside the top 30, I think that's pretty justified. Um, and Reyes is, is kind of the exact opposite end of the spectrum, right? I, I, I think that there's obvious power in his bat. And his second half even showed us that this, it's power that translates to the major league level. But there's just so many warm bodies right now in San Diego. Uh, I have a hard time projecting just what level of usage he's going to get. And, you know, I, I think it was Vlad Sedler who does some great work for RotoWire. Uh, you know, we, we talk about all the time how stolen bases are probably um, the baseball statistic that is, is missing the most in this era of baseball and, and, the, and just the one we talk about so often where – Really, from a fantasy perspective, when it comes down to it, the most important stat is just plate appearances. And I I can't really figure out where I land with Reyes. Now, it, it seemed like a month ago, he and Hunter Renfro were kind of being drafted in a similar tier. And now Renfro has just completely surpassed him, which, which I back. I, I just think that Renfro is obviously going to be the one who gets the benefit of the doubt, gets the first crack at getting every day at bats. And, you know, even the second half of his season, he showed that it wasn't just the left-handed power. He could also hit right-handed pitching at a reasonable clip. So, and also the Manny Machado thing is is kind of interesting because it, it clearly puts them in the box of a team that, you know, whether or not you actually think they have the talent or the starting pitching to do this, seems like they think they're a contender. So one of my ways you know, a month ago trying to think about how can I get Fran Mil Reyes to 600 plate appearances was, well, they probably trade Will Myers at some point. Everyone loves trading Will Myers. Uh, and it just seems like now they're kind of all that's, in. That's so, a big thing. Um, yeah, I just, I, I love Fran Mil Reyes, but I, I just can't figure out how I'm getting him to the plate, you know, 500 times this season. So we talked about some of the heavy guys, you know, the, the top draft picks. I asked my last question was basically, you know, where do you start off? Does it go batter, pitcher, pitcher, pitter, pitcher, pitcher, batter, batter, whatever it may be? 
you're a Blue Jays guy. The one thing the Blue Jays can hold on to right now is your prospects. Your prospects are top tier along with San Diego's, who you were just mentioning, and the lovely Will Myers over there, who everyone loves to trade. When do you make that push for the big-time prospects in a fantasy draft? For example, a Vlad Jr., a Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, those type of guys. When do you take those top five prospects and say, okay, it's the 20th round, it's the 15th round, it's the 35th round? When are you going to do it, and what is the justification on pulling the trigger on a Vlad or someone like that? Because there's so many question marks with, you know, the service time and if they want to bring up to a non-contender, which, you know, San Diego and the Blue Jays, you know, kind of pan out to be. What's your philosophy on that? Yeah, I mean, they're obviously very unique cases, and I think right now, just with where he's being drafted, uh, I have a much easier time kind of attacking Tatis, um, and, and I think that where he's almost in a position, you know, what are you giving up if you're taking Tatis over, you know, player X in round 14, round 15, you know, just 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 the trade-off of possible upside. I, I think I'm very comfortable going after a player like that, even though we don't necessarily know. We don't have nearly as clear-cut a timeline as when he's going to show up in the majors of the season, though I do think he's going to be in the majors for a significant portion of the year. Vladdy, you know, it's you mentioned it. It's it's sometimes we have to take into account our own biases here, and I, I I'm I'm almost worried I've 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 adjusted for my bias too much. Um, I I really think Vladdy's going too high, and he's 65 I, on ESPNs and head. I play head to head, and in the top 300, he's 65th for when you should draft him. I feel like that's kind of crazy high. I mean, in in the Sharps leagues, like NFBC, he's going off the board on average, pick 40.9. That's uh, wild for a guy that hasn't even played yet. People are excited. Look, and, and I get it. I get it. No, like, of course. If anyone gets it, you do. Yeah. And, and the projection systems love him. And, and that's the thing. But, you know, I've, I've kind of been trying to go back and compare him to the other top prospects we get really excited about heading into drafts, even though we know they're going to miss three, four weeks off the hop. Um, and I think the thing that separates Vladdy from you know some of these other guys, I mean, Acuna, he was, the allure of him was that he could be an instant five-category contributor, where Vladdy, four-category at best. Um, you know, you go back and you look at some... What, he's not going to steal any bags? That guy's uh, he, he might 45 break, bags? Come he on. might break second base if he tries to steal <laughs> um, You even go back to like Chris Bryant, the allure of Bryant, who would fit a similar sort of archetype of Vladdy in that they're four category players. I mean, Bryant, we were maybe didn't get the same level of buzz in terms of like, oh, this is a surefire Hall of Fame bat like Vladdy is getting. But he was supposed to possess generational power. And that means something in fantasy. Like you, you thought that you were maybe getting 40 home runs out of five months from this rookie. And it wasn't a crazy thing to project. Vlad's really interesting because the best case version of Guerrero this season is probably that his elite category is batting average. And more than any other category, batting average is left up to the gods, the baseball gods. And it's it's just so luck-based. And it's it's just hard to necessarily look at a player with a price tag that high with so much uncertainty just because he doesn't have a major league track record and go... Yeah, I'm paying for a 300 batting average because that's it's just a hard thing to necessarily say is going to happen. Now, 
you know, whether it's Steamer, whether it's the bat, you know, whether it's Pakoda, all, all of these projection systems think he's going to be a 300 hitter, but it's a lot to ask for a 20 year old kid making his major league debut. And, and, you know, you look at the rest of the stat line. I mean, Derek Cardi does a great job with the bat. It spits out a 297 batting average, 20 home runs, 76 runs, 72 RBIs. And that's in about 580 plate appearances. So that might even be a generous volume when it comes to plate appearances. You know, you look at that projection line and just kind of go through some of the other players at third base. It's basically the exact same line you would get for like a Justin Turner or a Daniel Murphy. And those are players going significantly after Vlad who, you know, we obviously have a certain level of comfort with at this point because we know exactly what they are. So, you know, if, if my option is taking Guerrero in the fourth round or taking Justin Turner in the seventh round, I'm just going to take Justin Turner. Yeah, I would I would take the, the shirt thing as well. Another kind of interesting thing, one of the only players in history to get as many saves as he's done so quickly, and he has a World Series ring. He is on pace to break the all-time save record, I think, at this point. He also is projected a top 100 draft pick. He also doesn't have a contract. <laughs> Craig Kimbrell is probably the, one of the most interesting... I think he's the most interesting pitcher, in my opinion. The most interesting closer, I should say, in my opinion, because you know about the Jansons, you know about Diaz, you know about those guys, you know what they're going to give you, and everything like that. But the Red Sox are a team that won 108 games last year. They won the World Series. They pretty much dominated the way through, and they need a closer. And there's some good baseball teams out there that could use a guy like Kimbrell. Do you think that he is a top 100 pick at this point? Because at the time recording, it, it's you know he's not signed yet, and there's about a month left until the season starts. And you know last year he started slow. His daughter had a heart condition. He was in and out of the hospital with her. He skipped the entire spring training last year. And the first month or so was a little rough for him because it was basically extended string training. He's going to have that issue again just because he hasn't been pitching. Do you think he's actually going to get signed to a long-term deal? And if he does, or if he doesn't by the time your your draft starts, do you pick him high and hope, or do you just kind of let him go to the you know mid to end rounds? It's interesting because with where he's falling, that's generally where I want to try and get my first closer. Um, I, I I don't ever want to be the guy who takes the first closer off the board. Like I'm not touching Edwin Diaz with a 50 foot pole this season. I'm more comfortable to kind of go after, you know, maybe the Roberto Osuna's and, and yeah, maybe the Kimbrels of the world, but it's, it's just such a, a leap of faith. Now I think despite well, him coming out a couple days ago and saying like, Hey, maybe I'll sit out this season. I, I think that someone is going to sign him. Uh, he's just too good. He he presents too much possible value for a team. My worry would be in this, you know, in this age of building super bullpens, you know, there's not a ton of pitchers out there who I would think are just, you know, straight up better than K Craig Kimbrell, especially, you know, sometimes I have to think about this from a manager's perspective too, as much as I don't like to play like, you know, 1970s baseball guy. A lot of managers are those, and and I think they're going to see someone with Kimbrel's track record, you know, consistently having that closer's mentality, quote unquote. Likely, wherever he signs, he's going to be the closer. But there are still a couple situations, like, you know, obviously he's not going to sign with New York or anything like that. They have too many pitchers. But you see former closers 
signing with these teams to be on playoff rosters and becoming the seventh inning guy, becoming the eighth inning guy. And when you're spending a top hundred pick on a guy who for all intents and purposes is a one category player. Now, yeah, obviously, saves. obviously Kimbrell's also going to get you some nice strikeout numbers too in his innings, but you almost have to be certain he's going to get you that one category. So um, I, I think you're playing with fire a little bit. If you take him, uh, I've done a couple drafts in the past week or so I've avoided him uh, just because I, I, to be fair, I almost already loathe taking closers so much that to take a closer where right now I can't even definitively say he's going to give me the one thing I need him to give me. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a risky situation. I mean, I feel like closers are like kickers and defenses in football. You don't want to be the first one to take it off the board. And once the first one does come off, it's like they flood out. Everybody goes and gets it, dude. Like, it's just literally like they're waiting for that seal to break. And then, boom, they're all gone within two rounds. So I'm with you on that. I wouldn't want to be the first guy to take them. But if I'm in my league and, you know, round five or six rolls around and, and Diaz gets taken, I'm jumping on the next best closer just so I don't lose out, whoever it may be. But I definitely wouldn't be the guy to be like, you know what? It's the start of the fourth round. I'll get Diaz in there for 68,000 saves. It's probably not going to happen. So can you please tell everybody how unlucky Shane Bieber was last year? I mean, he was unlucky. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely say that. Uh, you know, even even anyone with a passing interest in fan graphs could just head to his page and see the BAPIP was stupid. The strand rate was stupid. Uh, the FIP an ERA differential paints a, a very positive picture of what his potential could be. Um, that, that's not to say, though, I don't have concerns about Shane Bieber. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be someone who's like, I'm avoiding this guy completely by any means. Um, but there's, there's something to be said for someone who maybe lives in the strike zone a little too much. And you look at his zone rate from last season, 48%, uh, the eighth highest of any pitcher with 100 innings thrown. It, it seems like when he leaves his fastball in the zone, it's a pitch that can be hit. And we saw him have a lot of trouble with left-handed bats last season, specifically that fastball. They hit 353 with a 241 ISO off his fastball. And the big issue specific to that split is... You know, his slider is his best pitch. Unfortunately, not a lot of right-handed pitchers feel comfortable throwing sliders to left-handed batters. And, and you know, he definitely falls into that class of pitcher. His slider usage, 33% against righties, just 14% against lefties. So I don't necessarily know what the answer is. Because in in from a total standpoint, if I really take a step back and just look at Shane Bieber, and you ask me for what what would be one thing you would want Shane Bieber to do more of in 2019. I would just say, I wish he would throw his slider more. Um, but clearly he can't necessarily do that against lefties. And that's the biggest flaw in his game. So I don't know what his solution to that particular problem is. And, and that's, that's my red flag. Now at the same time, obviously talented was obviously unlucky last season and gets the benefit that every Indians pitcher does, which is there's a there's a chance he gets 16 to 18 combined starts this season against the White Sox, the Royals. Uh, I mean, the Twins could actually be a passable offense this season, so maybe I won't include them in there. But you know, there's there is some very bad offensive teams in the AL Central. I mean, we've seen Carlos Carrasco kind of feast on these three in particular teams 
for the last five seasons. So I think where he's going, like there's a tier of pitcher. It's like Nick Pavetta who has obvious flaws, but also has obvious upside. We've got like Tyler Glass now who maybe we haven't seen enough from to completely trust. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez. I, I feel like actually I keep ending up with Eduardo Rodriguez in drafts. And it's it's usually come down to like, do I want Shane Bieber or do I want Erod? I keep taking Erod, um, but again, I, I think that's I think he's in the proper tier, and I think there's obvious upside, but uh, that's that's not to say I don't have a couple concerns though. So what's the thinnest position fantasy wise? Is it somewhere like second base? I mean, because that's second base catcher. I mean, what is the? I was gonna say, are we, are we gonna are we gonna do catch, catcher? Seems like a cop out answer. But yeah. Even, even with you know, man, we 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 lost another top five catcher today. Um, it, it just there's there's just so little at catcher that I trust. Uh, but I I think that that's that's a pretty set in stone answer. So, um, shortstop is kind of interesting this season once you get past like the Big Ten. But I actually think first base is just, you know, I, it, it's tough. And, and this kind of loops back to uh, one of the initial questions we were talking about, which is like, what's your, what's your early draft philosophy? I would say in a perfect world, if I'm in a 12-team draft, my ideal first two rounds are I'm picking, let's say I'm picking fifth, and I get J.D. Martinez at five, and it comes back to me, and one of Paul Goldschmidt or Freddie Freeman are still on the board. And I just lock up first base because once you get past those guys, as much as as much as I like Matt Olson's potential, as much as I think Jose Abreu is just going to have a bounce back season, um, but you know even his bounce, he's a floor player, he's not a ceiling player. Um, I think Edwin Encarnacion is going way too late in drafts. Um, so there's there's value to be had at first base, but. Man, those two guys are on a tier by themselves, and you know I don't even know if it goes like tier one, tier two. I think it's like tier one, tier two is blank, and then tier three starts. So I, I really like getting one of those two guys in the second round. So that might just speak to how worried I am about the depth at first base. When do you take the speedsters? Not necessarily, you know, Trey Turner and Whit Merrifield because they do other things well, batting average. You know, they get on base. But when do you take guys like Buxton and Hamilton who? don't hit well but once they do get on base you might as well put them on third i mean buxton buxton's real interesting because his spring training numbers have been fantastic and and we've seen that immediately reflected in his adp um i've seen him now go as a sixth round pick a seventh round pick uh even as high as a fifth round pick and i i I wish i could remember who actually made this comparison because it's a great thing to remember when it comes to guys as talented as buxton is his numbers through his first four major league seasons mirror that of Aaron Hicks in a very, very creepy similarity. So, you know, it's, it's probably too early to say just like a blanket statement like Byron Buxton can't hit. So I think with at least with Buxton, you're still getting a little bit of upside. Actually, there's a, a lot of upside. Yeah, there's still a chance where Hamilton, we just now accept as an inherently flawed player, but Billy is really interesting because it took us so long to finally let go. And now we might have let him drop a little bit too far. Like you you look at the level of stolen base threat we're talking about with Billy. Like we, we know he's an elite stolen base guy, even if the numbers dropped off a little bit last season. But, you know, you, you go through some of the players who were able to steal in excess of 30 bases last season. 
they all have ADPs inside the top 100, aside from maybe D. Gordon. And, you know, there's generally a person who's willing to, to really move up and, and draft a guy like D. Gordon because at a certain point, you know, maybe if you did start out J.D. Martinez, Freddie Freeman, pitcher for pitcher, there's a good chance you need an elite stolen base guy. So, you know, it's, it's always hard to, to really make your draft strategy around like, oh, I'm going to get Billy Hamilton in the 12th round because, you know, maybe someone has a similar strategy and in their strategy, it's the 11th. And if you've waited that long to address your stolen base needs and you don't get Billy Hamilton, well, now you've essentially punted stolen bases. So it's a risky strategy, but I, I just look at his ADP in comparison to every other guy who we just say set in stone will get 30 stolen bases this season. And it's it's nuts. He is the outlier. We've 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 let him drop a little bit too far. Now, dude is bad at hitting. There's there's no way around Not that. Good. And, and there's a there's a very good chance he just bats ninth for the Royals, which is one of the worst situations you could possibly pick for a fantasy player. That is that that's that's rough, especially with Sal Perez likely not in that lineup now for most of the season, if not the entirety of the season. So I, I think he's he's a one category player, maybe one and a half if he can get to like 70 runs scored. But I, I do think like this is the year to draft Billy Hamilton because uh, you know, even last season, knowing all, you know, I don't think anyone's perception of Billy Hamilton has really changed all that much from last season. He went as the 40th overall pick in like the FSTA experts league last year. So with him now going outside the top 200 in some drafts, it just seems like a really easy way to exploit stolen bases. If we're talking about fantasy numbers, is there anybody who's very good at fantasy baseball and not very good at real baseball? I mean, Billy seems like a pretty good option for that spot. Yeah, Billy's Billy's the stock answer, uh, and I wanted to give you guys one that maybe wasn't just Billy Hamilton. I think Ian Desmond kind of falls into that category. Um, you know, just tons of holes in his swing. Has never really been a very good defensive player, even though he has the positional flexibility that sometimes can kind of fool like War into giving him a couple more points than maybe he should. Uh, but yeah, I would just say Desmond. It's kind of the double whammy with him too. Is He's a guy who I don't think very highly of as an actual real-life baseball player, but he has power, he can steal bases, he's, he's in a situation generally where he can drive in runs, and on top of that, you know, he gets to play in Colorado, which is you know, the closest thing we have to steroids in 2018. So I think that Desmond is just someone who, through weird fantasy niche abilities and the fact he gets to play at Coors Field, is probably like, the worst, best fantasy baseball player. What if we flip it and we said, who's really good at baseball and very bad at fantasy baseball? Is a guy like Jackie who and Kiermaier who are great defensively, but don't put up the offensive numbers? Or what's the case? I guess Kiermaier, Kiermaier's a good one. Because I would say Jackie, I, I just think any anyone in that Red Sox lineup um, is just has the potential to be a very, very good player. Like, you know, I, I bagged, I just bagged on Billy for being like the ninth hitter in the Royals lineup, but there's something to be said for being the ninth hitter in the Red Sox lineup. Like it's, it's, it's not that bad a spot. So, uh, I, I think he has the potential, obviously a stud outfielder, but I would say like your, your Kiermaier's, I guess Pilar is not even as good defensively anymore. I think Angleton Simmons is probably the poster child for that. Just guy with high contact rates, uh, doesn't strike out a whole lot, just 
the best defensive shortstop in all of baseball. You know, he had a five and a half war last season, which seems crazy because I can't remember myself at any point thinking like, oh, I have to watch this game. Anderson Simmons is playing. But probably the best the best example of that would be him. I, I would even kind of put a guy like Miles Michaelis into that list too. Just a very, very commendable pitcher, a guy with 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 pristine control. Uh, someone who is going to log you 200 innings, which is really a dying art form in baseball. But, you know, the strikeouts or lack thereof do hurt his fantasy value. So that's generally like the archetype of player I'm looking for from the pitching end of the perspective when I say they're better real life than fantasy. Like, uh, you know, Marcus Stroman used to be a great example of that, although he's kind of fallen off a cliff. But I think Michaelis is kind of picking up the torch uh, where he might have left off. Is Stroman going to bounce back? I don't know what's wrong with him at this point, because the next question was basically, how excited are you for the Blue Jays this year? Uh, um, I'm excited baseball's back. Uh, I'm going to be excited in, you know, the last week of April, I guess, when, you know, Vladdy's had his seasoning and is now a major league ready player. And it just just ironically happens to coincide with the extra year of service time. So that'll be fun, too. Um. I don't I, I don't know with Marcus Stroman. He you know, he, he dealt with a lot of injuries last season. I, I think that's not something you can necessarily just sweep under the rug, but you know, he, he had a weird amount of control issues that I, I, I don't think you can just close your eyes and pretend didn't happen. Uh, and, and he also just gets crushed when he leaves pitches up in the zone. Um, he, he and Aaron Sanchez are just really strange, obviously talented guys, but still flawed in their, in their own individual ways. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really looking forward to like, from a fantasy perspective, not really looking forward to draft any, any of those guys really. Um, you know, I've got a soft spot in my heart for Randall Gritchick at all times. He's, he's just, you know, the barrels, the barrels King. Uh, and, and I think he should be appreciated for that, but, uh, yeah, not not overly excited to, to specifically watch Blue Jays games. You know, we're talking about the Blue Jays and talking about Vlad. Somebody that has no fantasy value who just texts me is our friend, Phillies pitcher Cole Irvin. Uh, he said, make sure you mention that I struck out Vladdy twice in the minor leagues. There we go. Actually, I was, I was reading a stat today. Apparently, he only struck out in the same game nine times in his career in the minors. Uh, so I don't know if those happened in the same game, but if they did, your buddy's got a story. Yeah, yeah. He's fighting for a roster spot right now, and he gave up a bomb to Brent Rooker yesterday, so it's not looking good. That's tough. Yeah. So who's the breakout player for 2019, and who's the bounce-back player? I'm always believing that Randall Gritchick is is a day away from his 40 home run season. So just, you're still, just put you're that still down. waiting on it? Still waiting. I mean, hey, look, second half was great as soon as he came back from injury. Uh, I think breakout... Uh, you know, maybe I'm taking this a little too far down the line, but someone I do really, really like, uh, who you can basically get for cheap. If you've already done your drafts, you can pick them up off the waiver wire. Uh, Trevor Richards to me seems really interesting with the Marlins. Um, you know, when, when I'm looking for a breakout guy, it, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as who has a pitch that I think could just, you know, revolutionize who he is as a pitcher. And, Richard's changeup is fantastic. Uh, you know, 27.2% strikeout rate in the second half last season. That changeup's got a 25% whiff rate. Um, you know, he is someone who, as a lot of changeup pitchers 
have had happen to them. He's someone who tends to struggle with right-handed bats, even in those right-on-right matchups. So that is a little bit concerning, but he's got a great ballpark. Uh, win expectancy isn't too high, so that's a little tough. But I do think if there's just a random guy who we start seeing near the top of like, you know, strikeout percentages in the middle of May, uh, I think it could be Trevor Richards. So I, I think he is someone who maybe a lot more people are going to know about him than currently know about him now. And for a bounce back guy, uh, let's let's just demoralize you guys as Red Sox fans and me as a Jays fan. Uh, I truly think Gary Sanchez is just going to bounce back this. He season. can't be worse. Uh, and that's that's a good place to start. He cannot be worse. Uh, that's an important thing to remember. But you know, it's 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 just one of those things. Sometimes when you're talking about ba- bounce back guys, you you want something tangible. You want a reason why it all went bad. And obviously, there's concerns with Gary Sanchez as a player. He's got holes in his swing. But at the same time, when you see someone who was obviously injured. Uh, and, and, you know, to go so far as he's, he's, I think he did actually play, uh, sometime this week in spring, but he, or, or maybe it was actually, he was going to debut today, but you know, he had off season shoulder surgery and in, in your head, you'd think like, okay, if, if someone's really been having issues with their left shoulder all season long, where would that kind of crop up? And and to me, the first thing I thought about was he probably really struggled hitting pitches on the outside quadrant of the plate and you look at his numbers like his his contact rates for the outer third of the plate were below 70 percent last season um and and that was just not something we saw at all in 2017 and even you know there's there's this initial reaction to want to put some guy in like a pedro serrano category where they just can't hit breaking pitches and that was certainly the case with sanchez last season but again, we didn't see that in 2017. We have a full season's worth of evidence that Gary Sanchez should be able to hit breaking pitches. Uh, you know, in that in that 2017 season, he had a 292 batting average and a 236 isolated power off of sliders. Uh, and to see it last season go all the way down to a .067 isolated power, again, I think it just speaks to the fact that. He was somebody who could not show his power to the outside quadrant of the plate because his shoulder was just dogging him. Um, you know, pitchers obviously saw that because of all of all qualified players last season, he saw the fewest amount of fastballs, just 45.5%. So I, I think the book was out on him. I think everyone knew he was hurt, and I think they took advantage of it. So if he is healthy this season, the fact that he plays catcher, he doesn't really have to improve all that much to be back in the good graces of fantasy owners. Uh, I just think in a lineup like that, if he can hit 240, he's he's going to bring back value. So uh, I, I do think he's someone who's just primed to bounce back this season. He's like you in a lineup like that. If he is even remotely what he is the year prior to the, last year, like they could be lethal, man. That could be a problem. Well, like I said, uh, Fangraphs only has two teams projected to score more than five runs per game, and it's the Red Sox and the Yankees. Probably probably not a surprise to anybody, but I think to pencil both those squads in for 800 runs this season, it, it's it's not jumping the gun. Uh, I, I think that's more than fair. So, uh, you know, if he's going to bat fourth or fifth, or, you know, even if he's batting sixth to start the season, that's that's not a bad place in the in that particular lineup, in that ballpark. Um, and like you said, 
he can't get any worse. So technically has to bounce back. So tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and your Twitter handle and where they can find you on social. Sure. Uh, at Gary and Thorne on Twitter. Uh, the virtue of having a real weird name is I, I don't have to do anything frilly with that. Uh, yeah, and if you want to follow my work, uh, mostly based at DraftKings right now. So uh, check out the DK Playbook. Uh, on Tuesdays, I kind of have like a fun potpourri article where I, I generally will be writing about baseball. Uh, so make sure to check that out, and I'll have your DFS baseball needs covered over there too. Uh, also writing for the DK Live app, so make sure to download that. That's wherever you get all your other good, solid apps out there, the App Store or what have you. So uh, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun.